This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Senate Democrats are making a final plea to at least a few GOP senators to call witnesses in President Donald Trump's impeachment trial as senators began two days of questioning his defense team and House prosecutors. The next phase of the trial got underway today amid signs that a showdown vote at the end of the week on whether to call more witnesses is up for grabs. Joining me is Brad Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. So there's talk that John Bolton may be called. And now the White House has issued a formal threat to Bolton to keep him from publishing his book. How will that affect his being called as a witness? Yeah, so we're in a bit of uncharted territory here. So to be clear, the letter that was sent by the White House to Mr. Bolton, and I reviewed the letter, it's up on Twitter at this point, is not what I would construe as a threat. It's actually, I think, been blown a little bit out of proportion. This is somewhat standard correspondence that is issued when a manuscript is undergoing uh, classification review. The original version was submitted on, on December 30th by Mr. Bolton's attorney to the National Security Council. This is them following up saying, we've already done a preliminary review. We've already found some classified information. So there's clearly going to be stuff we're going to require redactions on. The review is ongoing. In the interim, you are not permitted to publish anything until we give you final approval on a, on a version of this manuscript. Generally speaking, these kind of letters are you know, generally not really viewed in any kind of you know, threatening context. The reason it's been viewed that way here is because it's being issued in the middle of an impeachment saga in which John Bolton is obviously a material fact witness. So it's taken on a life of its own. The president can classify anything he wants, can he? So can he classify the book after it's already been written? Yes. So he could classify. The president, if he wanted to, could determine the entirety of this book is classified. However, if that were to be what was done, if the White House were to issue a final determination saying the president, relying upon his inherent Article II authority, has deemed your entire book to be classified, then, under existing case law, John Bolton would have the right to bring a First Amendment lawsuit challenging the legality and the propriety of that classification determination. And then the DOJ in that lawsuit would have to submit something from the president in which he states publicly on the record that he is invoking his Article II authority to classify everything, in which case it becomes a political liability for the president, but from a legal standpoint, he could, quote unquote, win, because at that point, there's nothing to overrule the president's classification determination. It becomes a question of whether or not they'd be willing to put that in writing and submit it to the court. Explain how that's different from the president saying several times recently that, you know, he's going to exercise executive privilege if Bolton wants to testify. Yes. So this is a common misunderstanding that not only the president's having, but many people having. Executive privilege is a shield. It's not a sword. So if someone who is a current or former government official has been subpoenaed to testify and the, the information they're going to testify about is implicating executive privilege, they can refuse to testify in reliance upon the fact that the president has the ability to invoke executive privilege. But if that person wants to testify anyway, the president has no ability to stop them. Because, again, it is only a shield 
for them to rely upon if they want. It is not a sword that the president can use to restrain them, to censor their First Amendment communication. Now, obviously, if they're an existing government employee, there's all other manner of reasons why they wouldn't be allowed to testify anyway, and they wouldn't want to. They'd risk losing their job. But if they're a former employee like John Bolton, there is nothing the president can do, for example, to censor unclassified information that might implicate executive privilege that's in Bolton's book. He has no ability under the law to do that. He can only censor classified information. Looking at the way things are going, I know that Mitch McConnell said he didn't have the votes to stop witnesses, but that could also be a ploy on his part. How likely are we to hear from witnesses? It's really tough to assess. You know, I mean, I saw the same reports from Leader McConnell, and I, I take it with the same grain of salt I think you do. I think a lot of this is somewhat posturing. It's an indication that the vote's likely to be close, whatever it is, but that there's several members, most likely Susan Collins, Senator Murkowski, Senator Romney, and maybe Senator Alexander, who are on the fence at the moment, who are uncomfortable with how this has gone forward and might want to hear from witnesses such as John Bolton. And so McConnell let that leak to kind of put pressure on those senators to try to bring in some public pressure to get them to back off. But I don't think we're going to truly know one way or the other how that vote's going to play out until we have the vote itself. Does it seem to you as if John Bolton may really want to testify now because of this onslaught of attacks on him, on his credibility? I think originally the reason John Bolton you know, wanted to get this book out so quickly was he didn't want his own professional reputation that he's built up over decades and his potential book sales to be tainted or stained by the idea that he held back relevant information to impeachment just to sell books. That was probably his original impetus to move so quickly. Now, with the various attacks coming at him, I'm sure part of the reason he's probably even more so willing to testify is to basically say, look, I tried to do this the proper way. You guys can't handle it. The president's threatening me. The media's threatening me. If I'm called to testify, I'll testify. And he's basically saying, you don't control me. I'm a private citizen. I'll say whatever I want so long as I don't expose classified information. I've been talking to Brad Moss about the latest phase of the impeachment trial, 16 full hours of questions from the senators. So broadly speaking, do you expect to hear any new arguments, any new information during this period? Not really. So a lot of what I, you know, you're starting to see this with some of the initial questions. A lot of this is uh, political theater right now, some of these questions. When you saw, I think it was Senator Mike Lee who had a question of, isn't it the president's prerogative to decide how to conduct foreign policy, which was an easy layup softball question to the president's lawyers. Some of that's just for the TV. Some of that's just for political theater and, you know, talking points. Um, there will be some relevant questions. There was an in- interesting question from Senator uh, Rick Scott of Florida asking the extent to which, uh, you know, the House impeachment managers have the equivalent of Brady requirements to, to divulge exculpatory information that could exonerate the president as part of their presentation. It's an interesting question. Uh, I think, I don't think, as far as I'm concerned, they don't have that obligation, but it was a valid legal question to ask. Uh, Senator Romney is going to have several questions, especially about John Bolton, especially about Rudy Giuliani and what exactly the president was tasking him with to do in Ukraine. Um, so there's, for the individuals who truly are still kind of on the fence, wishy-washy about how they're going to proceed, I expect to see some decent questions out of them. 
for everybody else, the hardcore, you know, partisans amongst in the Senate, you're going to see just politicized, you know, questions. Let's look back at the arguments and compare the strength of the House arguments with the strength of the defense. So I think the House put on what was what would be viewed as a very methodical, very well presented case if this were a normal criminal prosecution in a court of law. Um, they walked through it step by step from the entire chronology, piece by piece, with texts, with video, with, sorry, with uh, transcripts of calls, with memoranda, with witness testimony, and they, get, they gave you A plus B plus C equals the required result of D, conviction. And that would have worked great if it was a court of law. The president's legal team did what, they would, what you would expect them to do, given that this is a political court, not a court of law, but a court of politics in the context of impeachment, and they argued a lot of peripheral facts that would have been viewed as irrelevant by and large in an actual court case, but which you could bring up here. They talked about the FBI surveillance of Carter Page. They talked about Mueller. They talked about the Steele dossier, things that have nothing to do with this case, but which serve as great political theater. The main crux of their legal defense basically became justification, which was the president had a reasonable basis to believe Hunter Biden's activities were corrupt, possibly criminal, and that's why he did uh, what he did in terms of trying to get the Ukrainians to launch an investigation. They did through a lot about a Hunter Biden, and again, that was largely for public consumption because there is no DOJ investigation of Hunter Biden. There's no indictment of Hunter Biden, but the justification they were trying to put up was this was how Donald Trump was trying to get to the truth. He's not the most tactful man but that's not required under the law. And what do you make of some of the Republicans saying, you know, we want to make a deal, John Bolton for Hunter Biden? Why would they even say that? They can just call whoever they want. Well, they don't want to have any witnesses. The reason they're the reason they were proposing this deal isn't so much about a worried about the Democrats. They were worried about people like, you know, like Senators Romney and Murkowski and Collins who might want to look into some of the facts that the the rest of the Republican caucus is really trying to avoid getting into. And so to try to head off that potential issue, they were trying to throw up this idea of a deal of, okay, we'll let you have John Bolton, but then we want to bring in Hunter Biden. And so they could get their, you know, entire caucus on board with that as well. It was, you know, a political, you know, trial balloon. It didn't really go very well. I'm not quite sure how that would play out. But if they have one witness, I have a feeling we're going to have multiple witnesses. Let's talk a little bit about Trump attorney Alan Dershowitz's argument, because though it's definitely a minority view of, you know, what's necessary for high crimes and misdemeanors, it does give some kind of cover to Republicans who want to say, well, even if that's true, this doesn't rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanor. Yeah, so what Alan Dershowitz has put forward, and he's been putting forward an argument like this for years, it's his very you know, controversial but well-established, uh, expansive view of presidential authority. He has largely decided that impeachment, that very little, if anything, will ever qualify as an impeachable offense outside of actual treason, and it would be virtually impossible to ever get to that point as far as he's concerned. You know, the way the kind of the legal argument he set forth from a constitutional standpoint is assume that this was all entirely a scheme to utilize to sorry to extort the Ukrainians to launch a frivolous 
an unnecessary investigation into the Bidens in order to get the foreign aid that we were supposed to, that Congress had allotted. Under Alan Dershowitz's analysis of the Constitution and the impeachment articles, that's permissible un, under the president's authority, and it's not impeachable offense. If the president were to just let the Ukrainians, or let the Russians take Alaska today and not do anything in response, as far as Alan Dershowitz is concerned, that's not an impeachable offense. There's very little he views as ever rising to the level of what qualifies as impeachable and that justifies removal. It's an extremely expansive view of presidential authority. It's not the first time someone's put forward something like this, but it's concerning in this day and age to see that argument still put forward on the floor of the Senate. So even at this point where there may be witnesses called, the general consensus is that it won't make a difference, that the House Democrats will never get the number of votes needed to actually kick President Trump out of office. So Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats, were they wrong to put the nation through this? No. So I think it was the right thing to do from a constitutional obligation standpoint. You still pursue it. You still conduct it, if only to make clear that the Congress will not just be subjugated to the presidency and will not allow it to act without political without political consequences. The fact that this is almost certainly going to result in an acquittal is ultimately neither here nor there because the uh, House did its job to determine what it viewed as impeachable, and the Senate is going to do its job and decide whether or not to acquit. And if the Senate chooses to acquit, that's the Senate's prerogative, and the decision is ultimately left to the voters of what to do with it. But the two branches of Congress did their job to fully you know, explore the matter and decide how they wanted to act from a constitutional standpoint. Thanks, Brad. That's Brad Moss, a partner in Mark Zaid. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.